Why'd you move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. No! Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the laughter. <laughs> the heroes. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters. And the honesty. What's up, Norm? My nipples. It's freezing out there. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. I'm still here and I'm staying. You hear that, New York? The frog is staying! I like this thing of the streets. It makes me feel good. I like to smell it. It opens up my lungs. Don't you love New York in the fall? It makes me want to buy school supplies. There are like... 30 raised pizzas. They all claim to be the original, but the real one's on 11th. And if you see a sign that says Peep Show, that doesn't mean that they're letting you look at presents before Christmas. Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad in L.A. And today we honor the films about a city that's taken a few lumps lately, and unrightfully so. It's our 80s tribute to New York in the movies. I love this town! (laughs) Stuck in the 80s is now listener-supported via Patreon. Join us for VIP Zoom happy hours and more when you join at patreon.com slash stuckinthe80spodcast. You know, Brad, we're really overdue for a patronly happy hour. We'll do one real soon. Have you been out on the street lately? Do you know how weird it is out there? We've taken our own head count. There seem to be three million completely miserable <laughs> living in the tri-state area. And what Budgie Brain here doesn't realize is that if we don't do something fast, this whole place is going to blow like a frog on a hot plate. What am I supposed to do? Go on television and tell 10 million people they have to be nice to each other? Being miserable and treating other people like dirt is every New Yorker's God-given right. Steve, joining us today, every day I write the book blog author and former New York City resident, it's Gail in D.C. Hello. This going to be a fun show, I think, because all three of us have some sort of personal connection to the city, right? Yes. I would say mine is the most tenuous, but sure. <laughs> we'll explain it all later. Hey, gang, so here's the idea for this week's show. The uh, world has been in somewhat of a state of lockdown, quarantine, social distancing mode, whatever you want to call it, since March. And frankly, it's getting to be a little wearing on everyone. But if there's a city that's taken more than its share of headlines during this pandemic, it's New York City. It's had one of the biggest surges of COVID cases early on. People freaked out. Some left. Broadway closed and probably won't reopen until next May at the earliest. One New York City comedy club owner even self-published an editorial called, quote, NYC is dead forever, unquote. And uh, here's the problem. The New York Post republished it. That stirred up a hornet's nest in the uh, form of Jerry Seinfeld, who wrote a scathing response that was published in the New York Times. And uh, rightfully so. It's just crazy talk. And as I sit here tonight, I'm recording from our New York City outpost, high atop, well, 12 stories on top of a residential building on the Upper East Side, outside, a few feet away from me, I hear the familiar blares, the car horns and the sirens. I, 
There's a guy practicing his saxophone in the neighboring building. I, I can see people sitting at cafes, having dinner, sipping drinks, buying Virgin Mary candles at bodegas. <laughs> and and everyone that's walking the streets is wearing a mask without complaining, and life just goes on. Uh, New York always survives. That is, unless it's a sci-fi movie and aliens surround the city with a doomsday device or an asteroid causes a tidal wave to wipe it out. Otherwise, New York always survives. And then, speaking of movies, it got me thinking, was there an era more devoted towards capturing the magic of this town, more so than the 80s? The films of our decade are full of movies set in New York City, but also movies where the city itself practically plays a character. And so for today's show, we're going to give this city a much-needed hug and honor the movies from the 80s that honored New York City. Are we becoming friends now? Well, yeah. Each of us has a few movies we're going to represent, and we'll also share our personal stories about New York City. Uh, Gail, why don't you start? Sure. I moved to New York City after I graduated college. So this was the 90s. And I'm so grateful that I did because I truly believe that everybody should live in New York at some point in their lives. I think that spending some time in New York, whether it's a summer, whether it's a decade, whatever it is, is great because the city will never feel unfamiliar to you. Um, I think when you don't know New York, it's overwhelming and intimidating and confusing. But when you've spent some time there, it becomes someplace that is very manageable and you can come to appreciate all the very wonderful things about it. I spent a couple of years there. I lived with friends from college. I had a great time making very little money and sort of <laughs> living that post-college partying life. And one of the things that I remember the most about living in New York, and this plays into one of the movies that I've picked, is New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve is a huge deal in New York. And in the 90s, what you would do is you would buy a ticket to some party at some bar. And the ticket was like 150 bucks, which of course at the time was you know a tremendous amount of money. And you would get open bar for the night and everyone would dress up and you would go and hang out in this bar for hours and, you know enjoy. It was always like a lot of pressure, like, where are you going to spend the night? And then, you know, how are you going to get home? Because it was impossible to get a cab. This was before Uber. And it was freezing cold. And I just, you know, this is one of my memories. And so the first movie that I picked for today's show is the quintessential New York City movie, When Harry Met Sally. I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely. And it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? Just like you, Harry, you say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. When Harry met Sally, um, I'm sure that there's nobody on who's listening to this that does not know what this movie's about. It tries to address the age-old question, can men and women just be friends? And it's about Harry and Sally and the course of their friendship and... They go from not friends to friends and then ultimately to something more. 
And one of the things I love about this movie is the unbelievably beautiful shots of New York that are just all throughout the whole movie. They shot all of these scenes, it seemed to me, at sunset or in the autumn time when the trees were turning colors and you have tons of scenes of Central Park. You have Loeb Boathouse. You've got the Shakespeare and Company bookstore. You have the Natural History Museum, which I think is my favorite block in all of New York City. It's basically 77th and Central Park West. I absolutely adore that neighborhood. You have the Met. You've got Katz's Deli for that, of course, very famous scene. You have an amazing winter montage of Central Park, Rockefeller Square, people ice skating, the Christmas tree, the Upper West Side. You've got Meg Ryan pulling the Christmas tree up Broadway. To me, this movie makes New York look better than I've ever seen it. And um, it's funny, I read a quote (laughs) about it that said they tried to make the scene so beautiful as a contrast to Harry and Sally's complete lack of vision when it came to their own relationship. So they had this gorgeous scenery around them that they barely seemed to notice, which was like, look at these people, look how clueless they are. That's pretty deep for a rom-com. I never really thought about that, but you're right. Every single scene is just like, it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. It's like every shot is the star shot. I mean, the apartments that they live in, Harry's apartment with those beautiful windows. (laughs) You have the brownstone that, um, Jess and oh now I'm just blanking on her name. Jess and Marie. 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 Yeah. I mean everything is gorgeous. Everything is just New York at its just most romantic, it's most like color saturated. It's amazing. And so to connect it to what I was saying in the beginning, um of course the pivotal scene at the end is New Year's Eve, which is actually the second New Year's Eve then that Harry and Sally spend together, but the New Year's Eve where Harry runs through the streets of New York and it's so crowded and you can't get a cab and finds her at the party where she's been. That just brought back for me all those intense New Year's Eves that I spent there. I remember this movie. It came out right after I graduated college. And I remember it was one of the first, literally one of the first couple of weeks after college and I had moved home. And this was a whole decade after watching movies about Chicago. You know, the 80s had so many Chicago movies and I always thought I wanted to live in Chicago. And then I went and saw this movie and and the combination of the fact that the city is so beautiful and this is the first movie that I'm seeing about, you know, professional adults as a professional adult. It it made me want to move to New York right then and there. And it also made me want to dress like Billy Crystal for the next five (laughs) years. (laughs) Yeah. You know, definitely the city, I think more than the other movies I picked, even the city is really its own character in this movie. And it's just, it's just like, you fall in love with the city while Harry and Sally are falling in love with each other. Yeah. If there was ever like the movie that helped me grow up and grow out of the 80s and grow out of being a college kid, (gasps) it was this one. Yeah, Can't grow out of the 80s, Steve. (laughs) The show's be over. You can go back into the 80s, which is what happened about, I don't know, six <laughs> oh, years. Okay. This movie is really on the cusp. It's okay. 1989. So sort of just made it into the 80s. It doesn't feel like an 80s movie necessarily, except, you know, it's got a lot of familiar actors to 80s fans. But aside from that, it, it feels it feels pretty timeless to me. I think you could watch it today. And aside from a, a few of the fashions and the fact that we don't have Bruno Kirby with us anymore, I think it would be pretty familiar. Yeah. Or Carrie Fisher. Brad, what about you? What's your uh, New York tale? 
what can some kid who grew up in Western Oklahoma and has lived in LA his entire life tell you about New York? Actually, I think it's really interesting what Gail said about spending some time there because until I spent some time there, it was kind of just another big city. Uh, you know, I've I've been to big cities around the world, and and you go, and it's it's fine, whatever. But New York is such a an American city when you get to connect with it a little bit. I in Oh, it was probably 10 years ago now. I was working on a project that had me in New York for like three weeks out of the month. And I was staying in the same place. And you kind of, without noticing it even, you kind of pick up the rhythm for the the place. And you're like, okay, now I understand like why there's a dry cleaner every three blocks because everyone has their little local place that they go to. And, And I kind of realized I was picking up like, well, that's my local bar. I'm like, oh my God, I have a local bar in New York City. How the hell did that happen? It's just kind of interesting how you you kind of put the mantle of New York on yourself and and you start to kind of get the sense of it and and I think you're right, uh, Gail. Then you can then once you have that kind of basis, then you kind of start to see what all the other things that are going on in that city. And I think that you can leave New York for many years, and when you come back, it feels familiar again. Yeah. Katie and I watched a non '80s movie that's set in New York City recently. Uh, perhaps you've seen Disney's Enchanted. I, I will cop to loving that movie. I find it hilarious. But as we watched it, we're both just looking at you like, "Oh, I want to go to New York. I want to go to New York. Why can't I go to New York?" Well, I think I'm living proof that you can. I'm, I'm sitting here right now. There's a sofa well, bed right there if you want to sleep on it. The the reason that we were supposed to go to New York this fall was postponed, that would being the uh, Music Man with uh, Hugh Jackman. But those tickets keep getting pushed further oh, out. Gosh, I think it's December now, next December. They start next December anyway. Who cares about that? Um, but my first movie has nothing to do with having a local bar. It has to do with having a local spectral removal service. Yes, it's 1984's Ghostbusters. Funny us going out like this, killed by a 100-foot marshmallow man. We've been going about this all wrong. This Mr. Stay Puft is okay. He's a sailor. He's in New York. We get this guy laid, we won't have any trouble. Ghostbusters. I feel like Ghostbusters, I'm not going to get too much into Ghostbusters because, again, if you're not familiar with this movie, you might have landed on the wrong podcast. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Come back. We'll wait. Okay, we're back. This is more about outdoor New York City than it is indoor. You spend a little bit of time in Sigourney Weaver's apartment, and every time I see that movie now, I think, how on earth can a cello player afford such a place, especially if her parents are living because she talks to her mom on the phone? Like, where'd the money come from? Uh, it's an amazing apartment, but I know movie apartments often are. But I think that the energy of New York in this movie is what happens in the streets uh, and what you see when they're walking around and they're, they're showing up on the, the uh, public access channel and the low budget commercials and stuff. It's just, it's so, so very much New York. And I kind of wonder in, in 1984. So I have a coworker who grew up in upstate New York and he would take like weekend trips with his school mates to come to New York City and go to see shows and stuff. And when he and I he and I were working on that project together, when we would walk around Times Square, he would point down streets, he's like, Oh, that's where the hookers were. And he's like, and <laughs> down that street is where all the drugs were. And down that street, I don't know, because I was not brave enough to go down that street and see what was going on down there. But in the early eighties, New York City was a little grittier place. Mm-hmm. And you don't really see that in this movie. I know there are movies where you do see it, but in in Ghostbusters, it's uh, it's the setting 
there are a lot of locations that you see Columbia University is where they get kicked out of. The first ghost encounter is at the New York Public Library. Uh, Tavern on the Green is where Rick Moranis gets turned into a dog. Bill Murray spins in front of the Rockefeller Center at the by the fountain. Again, a lot of those touchstones of the city that show up. Now, I will say a lot of interiors and things are shot in L.A. You go through the first main room of the New York Public Library, and then when they go down the stairs, that transitions to an L.A. building someplace, which is kind of ridiculous because L.A. doesn't have basements, but that's fine. <laughs> I think they do tours, don't they, where they, they take you around and they show you the sights of of most of the big movies. And I'm sure, uh, gosh, I mean, Ghostbusters has got to be one of them. Yeah, the exterior for the uh, Ghostbusters firehouse, it's in the Tribeca area, as I understand it. After uh, Harold Ramis passed away, I know fans of the movie went to that firehouse that's used in all the exterior shots. And they made like a, a makeshift memorial featuring Nestle's Crunch Bars. Um, and Twinkies, which are some of the references nice. in the movie. So that that's kind of sweet. Yeah, apparently Egon was a junk food guy. <laughs> the other thing I think is interesting, too, is Dana Barrett's building, a.k.a. Spook Central. I guess it's right off Central Park West, which, like you said, absolutely no business. Any, anybody on a... <laughs> On an orchestra salary living there. <laughs> the building's still there. It's like it's only nineteen stories tall. It look it looks like it's about fifty stories tall in, in the movie. But the, the the terror the demon dogs that come to life, mm-hmm. those were actually statues that were um on an old church in Philadelphia and they were at, they were shot and used, you know, on the the top of that building. So that's where you huh. Ghostbusters is a great New York city movie there's no question about it it's it is probably of all the movies we talk about today it's probably one of the ones that borrows the most from other cities and especially hollywood so what do you got for us steve so here's my new york story those of you who know my personal life a little better you you probably figure out that i spend a lot of time in new york these days because my fiance lives here um she's she's she lives here and like i'll visit for two or three weeks and then she'll come down to, to florida for two or three weeks so I'm getting to know it pretty well. I, there's a street I call Pot Alley because every time I walk the dog on it, it's it's 66th Street on the Upper East Side. There is more concentration of pot smoke there than in Kingston and Montego Bay and Ocho Rios combined. <laughs> and there may be one guy on the street, and yet it smells like we're at a, you know. <laughs> Bob Marley reunion? Exactly. Do you like to linger on and, that street for a long time when you're walking? <laughs> He walks real <laughs> slow, man. It's hey, it's, man. it's real. It's 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 odd because as I've gotten older and older, I I've grown to hate the smell of it, and the dog loves it because that's like there's like twenty good places there for him to do his business. So he'll linger, and there's always a bunch of munchies laying around, not so coincidentally. <clears throat> so he'll he'll tear into the half a sandwich that's left there, you know, rotting on the street, or a bag of uh, potato <laughs> chips, and so I'm man, constantly that's, having that's a, living his best dog life. <laughs> Yeah, he loves he loves going up and down Pot Alley. I, I even had to ask uh, the future wife today. I was like, "What, what the hell name is what, what's that street?" Just so I can say it in the podcast. She's like, "Oh, Pot Alley." <laughs> she, like she's like, "Let me think about it." Sixty uh, Sixth Street. So, my first visit here was was in the eighties. Spring break, nineteen eighty nine. My my roommate and I in college came up here because his grandmother lived in Battery Park City. Now I, I don't know his grandmother. You know, obviously is has long passed. I, I don't know if her how her building survived the whole 9-11 thing. I should have asked him that. But she came up here and she took us everywhere. I mean, it was, it was, I think it was the first time he and I had both been here. 
But it was also my senior year in college. And so I had three or four interviews that my journalism professors had set up. So I got to go to the AP and Cranes and what was the other place I went to? I think I went to a TV station. I didn't get any of the jobs. Phil's House of Newspapers. (laughs) Yeah. We ate at Chinatown, Little Italy. We did afternoon tea at the plaza. I think I still have some of the the sugar cubes from the plaza from that from that day. Um, nice. We went to Liberty Island. Uh, you know, we saw the statue. We got halfway up the Statue of Liberty. You know, that's about as far as I could go. And then, and then, of course, we we did go to the World Trade Center. And I went all you go all the way to the top. Yeah, I think it was a ten dollar ticket back then. And mm-hmm. you know, so I I have a photo of me somewhere in one of my college photo albums of me standing on the top deck of the World Trade Center. And it's it's pretty creepy to look at nowadays, I, I will admit. But it kind of reminds me of my first movie, which involves the top of the World Trade Center, 1981's Escape from New York. I have a deal for you. You received full pardon for every criminal action you've committed in the United States. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board president of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I guess I go in one way or the other. Doesn't mean shit to me. Give me the paper. When you come out? Before. I told you I wasn't a fool, Pliskin. Call me Snake. So I, I can't believe we haven't done an entire show on this movie yet. And <laughs> I can't believe you picked this. I can't believe you picked this. It's so funny. Co-written, co-scored, directed by John Carpenter. Uh, it's, it's, it stars Kurt Russell as, you know, Snake Plissken. Call me Snake. I thought you were dead. <laughs> so basically it's set in the future. I think it's set in the 90s, isn't it? The late 90s or the early yeah. 2000s. It's yeah. not – it wasn't that far off. And the idea was crime has gotten so bad in America that they've taken Manhattan Island and turned it into a maximum security prison. And once you are sentenced to Manhattan, parole is not possible. You, you live out your life you know, on this abandoned island. John Carpenter needed to create a futuristic, decaying New York City, and he had no budget to do it. Uh, he couldn't do it in New York City, which, as bad as things were in 1981, <laughs> <laughs> they still weren't looking quite that decrepit they yet. That bad. So maybe they East, just need to go down that one alley where my friend didn't know <laughs> what was going on. So East St. Louis subbed in for New York City. Ooh. It was full of old buildings. Yeah, and the producers actually convinced the city to turn off the power to ten blocks at a time as they filmed oh, at night. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. So, yeah. Just when I had lost faith that there was like no no good angle to New York in Escape from New York, aside from the fact that the name of the city is in the title, there are scenes that are shot at Liberty Island. They were one of the first, if not the first, film company to be allowed to shoot a movie on Liberty Island at the Statue of Liberty at night. They had the whole island to themselves, and that, that was basically the staging area for the police that were guarding Manhattan Island. Okay. So so when you see that in the movie, yes, you're seeing the real Liberty Island, the real Statue of Liberty. How important is New York to escape from New York? I honestly believe that when I first saw this movie, that it was entirely plausible that- <laughs> That by that 1997. They, yeah. The entire island would be turned into a prison, and, which I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I would appreciate my uh, luxury accommodations if it were, but 
That's that's what I thought of it then. I, I still love that movie. And anytime it's on, I'll, I'll watch it. Gail, what's your next movie? My next movie is Wall Street. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. You're not as smart as I thought you were, buddy boy. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. I've been in this business since 69. Most of these Harvard MBA types, they don't add up to dog shit. Give me guys that are poor, smart, and hungry. And no feelings. You win a few, you lose a few. But you keep on fighting. And if you need a friend, get a dog. Wall Street came out in 1987. It's the story of a young stockbroker played by Charlie Sheen, uh, Bud Fox, who becomes obsessed with Gordon Gecko, a wealthy, unscrupulous corporate raider played by Michael Douglas, who leads him down the path of unethical behavior. This movie, of course, takes place in New York because that's where the financial center of the United States is. As far as the scenery and the places where things are shot, you know, it's definitely has a very different feel to it than when Harry met Sally. You've got lots of scenes of lower Manhattan and Wall Street and, you know, stock exchange and the big offices where all the traders work. And then you've got a lot of midtown high-rise office buildings. He often goes to visit his friend who's a lawyer, played by James Spader. That's in Midtown. And then you have these beautiful apartments, penthouse apartment that Charlie Sheen moves into once he starts to make a lot of money, which is actually shot in Midtown. And there's lots of scenes kind of going back and forth between the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, all the way down to Financial District and back. So I think... You know, the movie is pretty um, realistic in terms of like how a banker would live, spending a lot of time in a car being driven to and from, you know, these Tony apartments uh, uptown going down to work. I found like the scenery and the architecture all feels very cold to me. There's a lot of stone, lots of office buildings. It doesn't have that soft edged sort of dusky feel that when Harry Met Sally has. And that, you know, I think that's because this is a movie about finance and it's a lot of masculinity and coldness, just like the characters themselves. I think it's funny. The only time there's a scene in the park is when it's the very end of the movie, when Gecko and Bud Fox meet and it's raining in central park and they're all by themselves. And they, they basically, you know, fess up to what each one was doing. And then of course, uh, Charlie Sheen takes one to the to the face. <laughs> right, right. Lots of nighttime scenes here because Bud is working at all hours, and um, there's also some amazingly gorgeous scenes of Bridgehampton where Gordon Gecko has a house. This beautiful beach scene, but even the beach scenes are not sunny. They're they feel they're always shot at like sunrise or it's gray outside. So it's just like a, it just has a very different palette to it than when Harry met Sally has. Gail, when you lived in New York, what part of New York did you live in? I lived on the Upper East Side and then I moved to the Upper West Side. So I spent time both. I wasn't ever cool enough to live in like the West Village or, you know, Chelsea (laughs) or anything like that. I was, you know, this was in the 90s. That's what I could afford. But I feel you know, very familiar with both of those. The Upper West Side at the time had kind of younger families. It was 
a little more, uh, what's the word, not bohemian. It just, it had just a little more sort of spirit and color to it than the Upper East Side, which always felt very buttoned up and kind of waspy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, those streets are very familiar to me and, you know, looking at this movie, you can sort of see him going up and down Park Avenue or going up and down Broadway. And, you know, that was, those are all familiar paths. Brad, what's your next movie? My next movie, uh, you've heard me talk about it before, and I'm so excited I get to talk about it again. It's Secret of My Success. I'm going to see that my husband gives you a leg up. I think we've done pretty well so far by ourselves. <laughs> I mean Pemrose. Uh, no. No, thanks. No, I'm going to make it to the top by myself. Oh, God, you're adorable. So, Steve, I bet you didn't know this film was inspired by uh, the early Hollywood experiences of a certain Steven Spielberg who snuck onto the Universal Studios lot and began using an empty office as his production office. No, that's crazy. <laughs> that's amazing. That That's the movie I want to see. Um, <laughs> originally, the script was about a young man working for his uncle and then falling in love with his uncle's prostitute, but... You know, that's just that's too much. We can't write that script. It's too complicated. It seems like something from the seventies. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? Last time I kind of got you know, it took me a while to get to the New York part. Let's talk about the New York part right up front. This movie is filmed was filmed in thirty plus locations around New York City. From the opening scene where Brantley gets, you know, arrives in the city, probably by bus, and he says as he walks through a very shiny door, Well, Toto, I guess we're not in Kansas anymore. That's the Port Authority. You've heard of it. It's the place. I'm told by a knowledgeable source, and perhaps, Gail, you can confirm this, that in the 80s and 90s that there was only one bowling alley on in Manhattan, and it was at the Port Authority? I don't know the answer to that, because when I moved okay. to New York in the 90s, my father said to me, my dad used to work in New York City. He lived in D.C., but he would commute back and forth, so he spent a lot of time in New York. And he okay. said to me, Whatever you do, don't ever go to Port Authority. He said it is not safe <laughs> and it is a terrible place. And so for like two decades, I was like, I can't ever go to Port Authority. Can't, and can't it, had, it. it took on this like mythic role in my mind. It was like this place. It was just a cesspool of evil. And, you know, you would go in and like, oh so my gosh. I had no idea That's if there fantastic. was a bowling alley in Port Authority because I never once set foot in there. <laughs> <laughs> Gentle listeners, I would love to tell you that that was set up, but that was a completely just that's happenstance. I had no idea that story was coming. That's fantastic. <laughs> Brantley walks out of the Port Authority. Uh, he's got an iron. He'll be fine. The place that he thought he had a job where he walks in and immediately gets fired is 101 Park. It's just north of Grand Central. And you see it actually, it shows up in the Avengers movie where they are having the big last battle scene. That was used for a lot of exterior shots of office building type stuff. The Pemrose, Pemrose Corporation, uh, the ground exterior and the lobby is at 599 Lex. It was easy to film there at the time because building was just getting completed and was mostly empty. Probably easier to block off the lobby for those amazing water fountain shots. Uh <laughs> <laughs> the, the the roof the jogging track on the roof always made me laugh because there's no way that any that they would actually allow that but uh that was at 919 third avenue 
it wasn't really a running track. I don't think when you look at it, I think it's the kind of track that they have up there just for maintenance people to be able to service the water chillers and things. But, you know, I need to stop and check my pulse and run around and get the helicopter shot. It's good. The city kind of shows up here and there. Like they, they spend a lot of time on on ferries when uh, Christy and Brantley are, are dating. They're on the Staten Island ferry at one point. Um, somebody asked me, why are they going to Staten Island? I'm like, because the ferry's free. Come on. <laughs> get a free boat ride. Why wouldn't you want to do that? It still seemed kind of weird to me. Like he didn't live there. She certainly didn't live there. It really is free. You just go back and forth for mm-hmm. free. Yep. Yep. When uh, when I took my kids there, uh, the Statue of Liberty, Liberty Island was closed. And so the closest you could get was to take the um, Staten Island Ferry. So we rode it back and forth so we could see the Statue of Liberty a little closer. That's crazy. Yeah. And then we it's went to Katz's Deli. for shooting a movie. I mean, I'm sure they contrived that so that they have an yeah. excuse to put them on the ferry. That and the water fountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of a uh, little bit outside the city. The Uncle Howard and Aunt Vera's house is the Lasden Estate in Katona. I hope I'm saying that right. The guy who owned it owned Reader's Digest. And this fun fact that I read just kind of makes me laugh. The tennis court and gazebo were added for the movie. The gazebo that kind of makes sense, but how do you install a temporary <laughs> tennis court and not just leave it? Like, could you just Quickly. roll it out, roll yeah, it up? Probably. It's like a tennis court floor or a, a basketball court floor. You just lay it out in squares. And- I'm surprised there's so much location information on this movie because I, my recollection of seeing it, and I've seen it plenty of times, is it's it's only because probably I don't I, sp- I don't spend any time in that area of New York. I, I wouldn't recognize any of aside from the Staten Island Ferry. I wouldn't recognize a single one of those locations. I will tell you on my my travels there. I was walking down. Uh, I was walking towards Grand Central, and I saw One O One Park, which was the exterior where he thought he had. I'm like, oh my gosh, I recognize that <laughs> building, and it was an it was an amazing rush. So I can see why people chase these things down. I don't know if the Secret of Success makes its own individual uh, bus tour in New York, but it's, it's probably not. Busy. Probably not. So here's my second movie. This one has a few more. Uh, noticeable spots, but I think this might be the most dated of all the movies that we talk about today. I speak, of course, of the classic Turk 182. Who here saw this? Am I the only one who's seen Turk 182? I've never seen it. I I saw it. Very, very, very quick. It's on Amazon Prime right now for free to rent if you want. Timothy Hutton and uh, Robert Ulrich are brothers who you know live in New York with very bad New York accents, and uh, the older <laughs> brother Bob gets injured in an off-duty fire rescue. He's he's a fireman, but he's drunk. But he comes upon a fire and helps save a girl. But in the process, he he wrecks his back, and the city won't pay for it because he was drunk. And so uh, Timothy Hutton begins this battle with the city over you know. Everyone thinks he should be paid and and, and reimbursed or at least have his health costs covered. But the mayor who's so busy fighting off a political scandal, gosh, how could that happen in New York, just doesn't want to deal with it. And so Timothy Hutton wages a um, like a vigilante um, uh, graffiti campaign against him. And so he's Timothy Hutton like an early uh, social media influencer. Exactly. Exactly what he was. So everywhere he goes, he begins painting, uh, you know, Zimmerman flew and Tyler knew, and then signs it Turk 182. So Turk 182 is code name for his, his brother. His brother was known as the Turk, and 182 was his badge number. Spoiler alert. But 
So as this takes place, we, we get to see the mayor's office. We see Battery Park. We see the New York Supreme Court. Uh, Giant Stadium, they, he stages a big FU to the mayor and the governor at Giant Stadium during a Giants game. He commandeers a subway car to, to put the graffiti on it. And then the big finale is the Queensboro Bridge is go, un, undergoing some big renovation project. And he manages to turn the words – you know, Queensboro Bridge or whatever bridge it is, because there's so many damn bridges in this town. They all look the same to someone like me who's, who's only here three weeks out of a quarter. He manages to spell Turk 182 out on, on this gigantic bridge and the city embraces him. And, you know, who doesn't love someone who sticks their middle finger up at the, at the bureaucracy of the city? And so that's kind of how New York, you know, shines or not so shines. I think the people shine in this movie more so than the actual city itself. Hmm. Gail, what's your third movie? My third movie is Tootsie. For I am not Emily Kimberly, the daughter of Dwayne and Alma Kimberly. No, I'm not. I'm Edward Kimberly, the reckless brother of my sister, Anthony. Edward Kimberly, who has finally vindicated his sister's good name. I'm Edward Kimberly. Edward Kimberly. And I'm not mentally ill, but proud and lucky and strong enough to be the woman that was the best part of my manhood. The best part of myself. That is one nutty hospital. I knew there was a reason she didn't like me. Commercial, cut it. And cut. Tootsie, I'm assuming most people... Are familiar with this one too. Tootsie is uh, a ni- 1982 movie about Dustin Hoffman who can't get a job acting in New York and he's desperate. And so he tries out for a soap opera and he tries out as a woman, dressed as a woman, and nails the part and becomes famous for uh, being Dorothy Michaels as opposed to Michael Dorsey, his real name. And becomes famous for this feminist character that he portrays on the soap opera. I picked this movie because I love it. And then I was surprised to see as I watched it, there actually aren't all that many scenes of New York in it. There's actually not that many different scenes in the movie. Most of it takes place on the set where they're shooting the soap opera. That set, sure. uh, that studio was on 42nd Street. The name of the soap opera is Southwest General, and the it is it's actually a real studio that existed on 42nd Street that they use. Dustin Hoffman lives in a large but kind of shabby apartment with his roommate, Jeff, played by Bill Murray, which I think is really one of Bill Murray's best performances. He doesn't have that many lines in this movie, but he's hilarious. That apartment is on West 18th Street at Fifth Avenue, just north of Union Square, which is part of the city I really like. Um, There's lots of sidewalk scenes. There's scenes of people gathered outside the studio waiting for autographs from Jessica Lange when she comes out, and then ultimately they're waiting for Dustin Hoffman as his character gets more and more popular. But there's just not that many distinct scenes. Um, One that's super memorable is shot at the famous Russian Tea Room, a restaurant also in Midtown, it's a scene where uh, Dustin Hoffman is kind of dressed up for the first time and he goes and surprises his agent who has no idea that he's actually his client, Michael Dorsey. And there's just a lot of funny things that happen at the Russian tea room as they're having a meal together. 
It's funny you mentioned Russian Tea Room because I, I saw it on your list, and I remember that scene pretty pretty clearly. And w- one time when I was here, maybe I don't know, ten years ago, I was staying in a hotel right around the corner from the Russian Tea Room, and I, I kept walking by, it going, you know, I know this from some movie, but I can't figure out which one. And then I, then you you know obviously say it, and then I promptly spent the next hour of my day when, when I should have been working today perusing all the different menus at the Russian tea room to see like how much would a plate of caviar be? How much would a, would a bowl of borscht be? Which by the way, $24 for a bowl of borscht. And welcome wow. to New York. Yeah. yeah. That's actually pretty cheap by, by, by New York standards. But I, I really had a good time and I was almost, I was almost convinced that I was going to try to ask a future wife like, Hey, do you want to, the few days I have left here, why don't we go to the <laughs> Russian tea room? But it's like, I know where it is compared to where we are now and it'd be a, a, a kind of a hike for a bowl of beet soup. So I think bowl we're going to pass. Beet soup. Mm. I think I have to mention, Brad, I think the Russian tea room is not that far from another memory for me in New York, which is I had a drink with Brad. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> that was yeah. a couple of years ago now, maybe. Yeah. Maybe two years ago. Yeah. We were both in New York for work. Yep. I remember it was freezing cold. It was cold. cold. I had to wear a coat. And- you guys. Actually, I bought a coat <laughs> for that trip. Yeah. You needed it. It was like 15 degrees outside. And I think we were not that far from the Russian yeah, tea room. We were somewhere a little closer somewhere to Central in Midtown, Park, yeah. around like Sixth Avenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh. right. That was fun. Yeah, we Cute. talked about that you, Steve. Fun. No, you didn't. Gail and I had drinks in Orlando one time, but they're not going to make a movie about the Ale House, so it's it's going to work out just fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just to close the loop on Tootsie, so does New York? play a big role in this. It does because it would not make sense for this movie to be set anywhere other than New York. Yes, there are soap operas that are set in LA or that are filmed in LA, but you would need New York to have the Michael Dorsey character, somebody who considers himself a fine stage actor. He doesn't fit any place else. No, he doesn't. There's also some lovely scenes that are shot upstate when he goes to um, spend the weekend with Jessica Lange and her dad. And they're on kind of a farm that's, you imagine it's probably a, a two hour train ride outside the city. And it's very bucolic and nice up there too. So I just want to include that. Brad, what's your final movie? Steve, we've been spending an awful lot of time in Manhattan. Awful lot of time. And as much as I like Manhattan, I think it's time for us to visit some of the other boroughs. So let's do the right thing. Yo, Mook! A couple of words of time working here. Okay. Mook! So you know I'm still sick. What? Come get your brothers up on a war. Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come we got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some sex. Do the right thing. Guys, remember this one? Uh, of course, yeah. This, this film is set entirely. It's shot entirely on one block or maybe two blocks. Uh, and the I'm going to butcher this. Bedford Stuyvesant. Is that right? Something Everyone just like says that? Bedford Stuy or Bed Stuy. Bed Stuy. The Bed Stuy. Okay, we'll just go with Bed Stuy. Now I sound like I know what I'm talking about. The Bed Stuy District of Brooklyn, pre gentrification, boys and girls, pre gentrification on a hot summer day. The pizza place opens, the neighborhood's different, the kid hates it, dot, 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 trash can through the window. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is this is a great movie. I 
forgot how much I enjoyed this movie. It has a lot, I think, to say to us even today. Um, but it is also, I think, again, the neighborhood is, it's more than just the setting. It's the space that all these people occupy and it's so much a part of what's going on in the story. Right. I, th- I think more than maybe any movie we're going to talk about today, do the right thing is all about the location. Mm-hmm. The, the point that, that Sal has a pizzeria that, you know, he's owned his whole life and, right. but the neighborhood that it's located in now is not a, an, an area where Italian Americans live anymore. It's now, right. You know, more African American and, and uh, Latin American so that creates the the problem that the the movie centers on where people aren't happy the way he he's treating some of his customers the neighborhood people are starting to get pissed off at each other for you're playing the wrong music no you're playing the wrong music and then god forbid there there's you know somebody wearing a Boston Celtics jersey rolls over the foot of someone wearing Air Jordans and it almost starts a riot it's it's an yeah. interesting movie and it's probably it's it's easily worthy of its own podcast. I think what was really interesting after it came out, two two things happened after this one came out. Spike Lee was pissed off that a bunch of critics were saying that this movie is dangerous because it would incite anger and cause riots in in the black population. Uh, and if that were to happen, it would be Spike Lee's fault. Well, he was. He didn't like that that's, at all. That's, that's ridiculous. I don't blame it, him for not liking that. Right. I mean, that's just that's really not coherent thinking. So he he fired back saying, "Well, you know, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger movies all the time that have violence, but it doesn't it doesn't create any violence as a result." I have um, yet to steal a flying boat and uh, <laughs> blow up a small island, but I'll, I'm thinking about it. And then, and then it got passed over for one of the best picture nominees at the 1990. Uh, Academy Awards ceremony and Kim Basinger, who was announcing the nominees, kind of <laughs> yeah. stirred up some trouble. She kind of uh, diverted from her text and yes. said, quote, we've got five great films here and they're all great for one reason, because they tell the truth. But there is one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it because ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all and that's do the right thing. So, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if Kim Basinger has been back to the Academy Awards hmm. after that. <laughs> I, I, you know, someone like her should be able to do whatever she wants. And yeah. then according to, I think, Michelle Obama's book, she and Barack had their first date in New York City and saw this movie in 1989. Oh, yeah. I read so, that. Oh, nice. There you go. I haven't seen Do the Right Thing in a long time, and I loved it when it came out. And my memory of the scenes is that it felt like you were looking at a set. Like it was, it felt very, like, like again, to use that word saturated, like it was colorful and it. They did repaint. They did repaint. Yeah, well, but I'm wondering, like, was that intentional? Like, did, did it, was it, in, it supposed to look gritty and realistic or was he trying to create something that was, hmm. you know, not an ideal, but that was like, that felt almost theatrical. That's a good question. I mean, what I've read, um, well, a couple things. One, the pizzeria didn't exist, right? It was built from scratch on an empty lot, which is hard right. to believe that there were empty any empty lots around. But, you know, th- that's true. And the grocery store across the street, same thing. But my understanding was that they painted a lot of the, the buildings for this film. And I have mm-hmm. to think that's intentional. 
you know that that can't have been they didn't just like go go get some paint i'm sure spike he was just like oh whatever color you want just pick something yeah. fun no, no he no. had a he, vision he had to have he, a vision the use of color has always been important to him and it, it's it's clearly represented here you say it's so theatrical. What I think would be interesting is I think this is one of the few movies that can be converted to the stage mm-hmm. and presented just oh, as yeah. effectively. Yeah. 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 That's maybe what I was getting is that it felt like I was on a set. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I have two movies to end my list so that we can bring it up to a cool 10 movies uh, about New York in the 80s. And I'll be quick about them, I promise. <laughs> the first one from 1988, Coming to America. But where in New York can one find a woman with grace, elegance, taste, and culture? A woman suitable for a king. Queens! What makes this movie such a great New York pick is that the geographical misunderstanding of the Queens borough (laughs) is the foundation of the movie's humor. (laughs) There's no way that an African prince and his servant would, you know... Willingly go to Queens, theoretically. I, I've been through Queens. It seems quite nice, to be honest. Um, or at least it does now. But um, that that's it. That is the entire joke. There are other scenes in the movie that, that revolve around specific locations. Madison Square Garden is there for the basketball game they go to. When uh, when King Joffrey Jofer shows up, he sends Arsenio Hall to the Waldorf Astoria to await his punishment. You know, yeah, stuff like poor that. Guy. Yeah. What's interesting to note, too, is coming to America, uh, the sequel is scheduled for a, I guess, a December release this year. I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not, given the whole COVID thing. Might be streaming. Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, John Amos, Paul Bates, James Earl Jones, most of the cast uh, has signed on for the sequel. Uh, So is Wesley Snipes for some weird reason. We'll have to see what that's all about. I hear he Uh, plays a vampire in this one. (laughs) Yeah, that's shocking. No word on whether any of the film will actually be set in New York City, but but we'll see. And then my last film, this is an oddball pick, I gotta gotta admit. It's only in there for the people who really can't connect with the other nine movies that we suggested. (laughs) I'm talking... Okay, Art House crowd, if you're still with us. (laughs) The movie was Crossing Delancey. This isn't the way I live. This isn't the way I do things. How do you live? Well, for one thing, I I don't live down here. I live uptown. Is that right? A million miles from here. This isn't your style. (laughs) This isn't my style. Sometimes you can change your style. Look, I'm sorry you had to go through this, but my puppy's impossible. I have this friend, Harry Shipman. Shipman Imports. Locks, caviar, fancy stuff. For years, he used to wear this little brown cap, the brim pulled down. You wondered how he could see. One day, he's crossing the Lancy. This big wind comes. Poof, it's gone. He runs after it, but a truck gets there before he does. He comes into me crying he feels so bad. Harry, I said, here, take $5, go across to Finkel and buy yourself a new one. But do me a favor, forget the brown cap. He goes, he comes back an hour later. He's a new man, a gray felt Stetson, a beauty. The next day, he makes an engagement. Between you and me, he must have given Finkel some Nova on the side. There's no $5 hat. Man trades some locks for Stetson and gets a bride in the bargain. Very romantic. Oh, he had his eye on her for a long time, but she couldn't see him. That little brown cap. She couldn't see his eyes. Now, I know Gail and I have seen this movie. Brad, I'm, I'm assuming you're sitting there scratching your head. I can't even spell this. <laughs> 
really not that difficult. Uh, Nineteen eighty-eight, so late eighties, like like a lot of these movies are, are actually are for this week's show. Amy Irving and uh, Peter Rugert are there, and they're basically playing two single Jewish people who are in their thirties, who are set up by a uh, marriage broker. She works at a bookstore on the Upper West Side. He owns a pickle business on the Lower East Side. And this is where the movie finds its its life. It is really a battle between the Upper West Side and the Lower East Side. Uh, really? Interesting. So is that like the other side of the tracks kind of thing for New York? For yeah. Manhattan? Well, Lower East Side – in it's more uh, gentrified now, but in the in the 80s, it was more of a culturally Jewish neighborhood skewing towards the older population. It's okay. It, it doesn't look awful in the movie. It just looks well. And old. he's also like he works with <laughs> his it. hands, and you know she she goes down to see him one day, and he's like reaching into these barrels of pickles, and his hands are getting wet with pickle juice, and it's like. It, I think there's you know the contrast between sort of this like intellectual life versus this much more like, you know, man of the people. Yeah. Y- yeah. Blue collar yeah. kind of. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. The only really likable character in this movie, because it's, it's not Amy <laughs> Irving for sure, is, is the, the woman who plays her grandmother, who's trying to set this whole thing in motion, who plays her bubby. That's kind of what goes on here. There's a lot of little details. There's shopping bags that say Ed Koch from air. There's a, they're, they're at a, they're at a, <laughs> a Jewish Brie at one point And, um, there's a, obviously a banner that was printed out on a dot matrix printer <laughs> using print shop. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. Like, stuff like that's real, like quintessential 80s in this movie. Does it hold up? I don't know. I think I would have rather seen it in 1988. But it's I love it for just the really laying down the, the law about you know Upper West Side versus Lower East Side. And, and these two places just don't mix one way or another. But you know what does mix? The Ah, the mystical refrain of I Want My Mystery TV Theme Song. Hmm. After a whole show of movies, we're going to talk about TV. That's okay. You uh, bet. Brad and I didn't watch TV in the 80s anyway. We will play a snippet of a TV theme song from the 80s if you know it. You're entered into the drawing to win some piece of swag that I like to call. What do I call it, Gail? Postal Postal friendly friendly bottle opener. So here was the uh, clip from a couple shows ago. That's a theme song from 227. Didn't that, that have Jack A in it? Yes, yes. And it's kind of the, the sequel, sort of, to The Jeffersons right. in some ways, because Marla Gibbs is in it. There's it, no yeah. Carter this, and Jack A, I think. ran for quite a while. Just ran for you know a good chunk of the 80s, from September 85 to early 1990. Wow. It was adapted from a play written in 1978 about the nice. lives of women in a predominantly black apartment building in 1950s Chicago. <laughs> However, they moved the setting to present day... Not New York, Washington D.C. Sorry. Well, not sorry for Gail. 
If only I had known, I would have chosen a show set in New York. But I didn't, so I didn't. That said, winners this week include Joseph Perdue, Gina Gilroy, John Ross from Charlotte, North Carolina, Danny Geister, Nate Chops Johnson, Carol Parrott, Alan Titus, Mike from the Sloats, Eric Celine, Dave in Oxford, Buck from Wally World, Josh in Birmingham, David Hamn, Matt D in Oregon, Paul Dansman, Chase in Ecuador, David in Edina, and Carlos M. Hernandez in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, Gail, you want to spin the wheel so you can get uh, the postal friendly bottle opener? That's so weird doing this. Ah. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you too. Sorry. Sometimes it's the easy things in life. Steve's messing with you. <laughs> and looks like it's going to land on Danny Geister. You're this week's winner. Send us your postal address and we will send you some swag. In the meantime, here's this week's mystery TV theme song. If you know it, email us at podcast at SITDs.com and tune in a few weeks to find out if you are a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Here's some ice cream cakes that only Carvel makes. They're made fresh every day because that's the Carvel way. And while you're at the store, say cookie puss some more. Forget about Hug Me the Bear. The friendliest bear. Your participating Carvel dealer also has Hug Me the Bear and Cookie Puss Dolls. You'll love them. Thank you. And we're back. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about a few of the movies we didn't mention because uh, obviously they didn't fall into our given decade. If I could have picked a non 80s movie to, to honor, it would have been The Warriors, but that was 1979. Okay. If I was picking a outside the eighties, I would go with and this is a, this is going to be a surprise. It's two thousand five's Little Manhattan, which is just the sweetest movie. I can't believe I'm saying that with the level of sincerity that I am. But it, the story revolves around a, the protagonist is a ten year old boy who's fallen in love for the first time. It has a, a crush on one of his classmates, and oh. it's set in New York. And, and New York looks beautiful in this movie, like. I don't know how much time they took scrubbing the gum off the sidewalks because the city is just sparkling and it's just lit beautifully. And this poor kid, he's just like he's 10 years old. He doesn't know what the heck's going on. It's a very sweet movie. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned like the whole um, sidewalk thing. You know, the sidewalks look so cute. The, the, build, the city looks so cute. But the one thing that always freaks out my family, none of whom have really been to New York, is the the fact that you know, we have a dog up here, and they're like, "Well, where's the dog go to the bathroom?" Like on the sidewalk, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Newsflash: When it rains in New York for the first ten minutes, it smells like pee. <laughs> yeah. So, Gail, what's your what's your non eighties pick? Well, I picked this not because it's a good movie, but because it's such a quintessential New York movie. It's Bonfire of the Vanities, one of the worst book to movie adaptations ever. Mm. <coughs> Dune. <coughs> it's an amazing book. I mean, New York is definitely one of the main characters of that of that entire book. Saw the movie. It's horrible. Terribly miscast. Everyone in there is miscast. Bruce Willis is miscast. Melanie Griffith and Tom Hanks just awful. But um, it's it oh. is such a New York movie. So that's what came to mind. And that just missed it. It was 1990. Yeah. Talk yeah. about bad movies. The only movie I've ever walked out of. Well, actually, I drove out of it because I was at a drive-in. Uh, Bright Lights, Big City. It's uh, just unwatchable. I don't know how it ends, and I don't care. Yeah, I don't know. The, the only other bad New York movie from the 80s I could think of would be 
can't stop the music, you know, the village people movie. And, and you can kind of, you can kind of give that one a pass because it's campy and because nobody actually watched it. So it doesn't really, di- didn't really do any harm. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you were going to talk about all time, great New York city movies, some of the ones I think you'd have to think about. And it's ironic. These are all from the 1970s. I'm just going to list them off real quick. Taxi driver, Serpico, dog day afternoon, death wish, Saturday night fever, King Oof. Kong, love story, Annie Hall and the goodbye girl. All set in New York City. All happened in the seventies. So maybe the seventies as much of a claim to loving the city as the eighties do. If the stuck in the seventies guys want to want to fight, just tell them to set their walkers down and come find us. Yeah. In the meantime, let's play this old game. What's your eighties obsession? Brad, what's your eighties obsession? Well, this may come as as a surprise to you, but Gail, sometimes I read books too. I don't read nearly <laughs> as many as you do, but this summer I read this book called Action Park, Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park. And I'm guessing that our New Jersey area listeners will know of this place. Uh, I happened to see an excerpt someplace online, I think it was in May actually, because I ended up buying it to read over Memorial Day weekend, and I couldn't put it down. It just this death trap of an amusement park and the way this the guy who built it up i don't need insurance i'll create a company that says it's an insurance company and i'll just pay myself it's crazy the stuff that went on at this park and honestly it's tragic in a lot of ways too because people died in this park jeez but the guy who wrote it is the son of the founder and i feel like he he tells the he tells the stories with and you know with an eye to um you know, to maximize the humor value of the story. But I also do think that he's sensitive to the fact that, you know, people came to this park and didn't leave. Brad, you know that it's a documentary now on Netflix, right? <laughs> I have not seen that. I did notice that, but I haven't watched the documentary. Oh my God. I've heard it's great. It's called Class Action Park. Class Action Park was one of the nicknames and Traction Park was the other yeah. one I saw. Jesus. But like the, the, the place was doing great business with the ambulance services from what yeah. I can tell. But anyway, it's a, a light read, minus the people dying. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time reading it. Some of the stuff is just over the top. Every chapter, you're like, well, they can't top the, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a great 80s obsession. I, the only thing I can say is that I just finished Cobra Kai season two, and I love the entire season all the way up until the finale. And then I don't know what to say about the finale. It, it, it kind of takes you all over the place, and then it kind of dumps you off in a really good spot. And so... I will uh, sit here faithfully waiting for season three. Gail, what's your 80s obsession? I'm really late to the game on this one, but um, one of my pandemic entertainment options has been I'm finally watching Red Oaks. Oh, oh, Oaks? oh yeah. You know what? We saw the first season and we loved it. and We never went back to the next season. Oh, it's I- so good. Yeah. It's so good. So it's a, for people who don't know, it's a set in the 80s in a New Jersey country club. And it's a kid, he's in college and he's sort of like learning about the world from, he's a, he's a tennis pro at the club and he's learning about the world from Paul Reiser, who's president of the club, a super rich guy. And it's just, it's really charming and it's got a great soundtrack and I think the acting is great and it's only half an hour episodes. It's perfect. Yeah. First season was fantastic. We need to go back and watch the other two seasons. Hey, that's all we have time for this week. I hope you'll take a time out in our crazy lives right now. Go online, peruse your DVD collection, watch a great movie about New York City, and then just start counting down the weeks until the city is alive and well and 100% again. Start counting down until Broadway opens again, until the throngs gather again in Times Square to celebrate another New Year's Eve. Because 
New York always survives, and it will thrive again. Brad, Gale, and myself, we know it because we're hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening.